And welcome to the Deep Dive Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Nick Espinoza, and we're going to be talking about all things cybersecurity, cyber warfare, and technology related. And I think we're one of the only ones out there that's doing that right now. If you'd like to be part of the radio show in any way, shape, or form, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. Or you can send us an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. We have an action-packed show as always. There's always a lot to cover, so stick around with us as we deep dive into a topic and we catch up on everything else. So without further ado... Let's begin. And we have a great show for you this week. Obviously, if you can hear, I'm a little under the weather. So this show is going to be a little different of a format. We're not going to do breaches of the week or a full-blown deep dive this week. But what we're going to do is catch up on all of these super interesting news stories from cybersecurity, technology, social media, everything that's impacting your life. The last couple of weeks have just been jam-packed, not to mention we're over 100 days into a three-day war in Ukraine. So we're going to be covering all of that. So sit back and enjoy, and let's get going. And in Ukraine news, and we are, as I'm sitting here talking to you, 110 days in, so you might be 111 and on as you're listening to this, or you might be hearing me here live. Um, so we're 110 days in, and basically uh, to the Ukrainian war, and tech has really shaped this conflict. Now, I think this is actually really interesting because this is probably one of the first truly modern wars that we have seen in recent times. Obviously, understanding Afghanistan and uh, you know was recent, and we pulled out in the last year plus. So, but this is actually a full-on conflict. And here's what's here's what's going on. This is coming from the Associated Press. I thought had a really interesting write-up on this when the war hit a hundred uh, hundred days, which was ten days ago. Uh, as again, as I'm sitting here talking to you. So, with that, let's let's talk about this. Um, and again, this is coming from the AP because on Ukraine's battlefields, the simple act of powering up a cell phone can literally beckon a rain of death, uh, you know, coming from the sky. Artillery radar and remote controls for unmanned aerial vehicles may also basically invite fiery shrapnel showers wherever they are. Now, this is the quintessential electronic warfare. It's critical, but it's also a largely invisible aspect of Russia's war against Ukraine. We also recently learned that Ukraine is running out of ammunition as well, which is outside of the scope of this, but you know, there's many facets to a war, which is my point. Military commanders largely shun discussing electronic warfare because they fear that it may jeopardize their operations or it may reveal secrets of what they are actually doing. Electronic warfare technology targets communications, navigation, and guidance systems to locate, blind, and deceive the enemy, and also obviously send you know lethal fire you know missiles rain down whatever it is that they're going to rain down it's used against artillery it's used against fighter jets cruise missiles drones everything militaries also use it to protect their forces it's an area basically where russia was thought to have had a clear advantage going into this war but for reasons that are not entirely clear its much-touted electronic warfare prowess was barely seen in the early stages of the war, and basically what was considered a chaotic failure to basically take Ukraine and and uh, obviously take its capital of Kiev. It has become far more of a factor in the fierce fighting in eastern Ukraine, though, where shorter, easier-to-fend supply lines let Russia move electronic warfare gear closer to the battlefield. And I quote, 
They're jamming everything their systems can reach. We can't say they dominate, but they hinder us greatly. That is from uh, basically an official of the Aero Razvitka. And again, I'm sorry I'm butchering that. Uh, they're a reconnaissance team of Ukrainians unmanned area, area vehicle team who spoke on the condition of anonymity, obviously because, well, they're in a war zone. Now, a Ukrainian official, uh, intelligence official, called the Russian threat, quote-unquote, pretty severe when it comes to disrupting reconnaissance efforts and commanders' communications with their troops. Russia jamming of GPS receivers on drones that you the Ukrainians use to locate the enemy and direct artillery fire is particularly intense on the line of contact, according to this uh, this individual. Uh, Ukraine has also scored some successes in countering the electronic warfare efforts by Russia, though. They've captured important pieces of hardware. That's obviously a huge intelligence coup for them. They've destroyed at least two multi-vehicle uh, mobile electronic warfare units, and its own electronic warfare capability is actually rather hard to access. Anal- analysts uh, assess. Analysts say that it has markedly improved since 2014 when Russia seized Crimea and instigated a separatist revolt in eastern Ukraine. But there are setbacks. Last week, Russia claimed that it had destroyed a Ukrainian electronic uh, intelligence center in the southeastern town of Nebrovsk. And again, I apologize if I am butchering that pronunciation. The claim could not be independently confirmed, and Ukrainian officials did not respond to a request for comment. Obviously, they don't want to give away those kinds of things. Now, Ukraine has also made effective use of technology and intelligence from the United States and other NATO allies. Such information has helped Ukraine sink the battle cruiser uh, Moskva. Uh, I remember that they hit it with a missile and it basically sunk, uh, you know, in the I believe it was the Black Sea. Allied satellites and surveillance aircraft help from nearby skies, as does, interestingly enough, Elon Musk's Starlink satellite communication network. If you remember at the beginning of the war, Elon Musk, owner of Starlink and uh, SpaceX and Tesla, et cetera, et cetera, basically said, uh, yeah, we're going to give them Starlink for free to help in the war effort. Now, electronic warfare, if you didn't know, has three basic elements, probe, attack, and protect. First, intelligence is gathered by locating enemy signals. On attack, basically white noise jamming disables and degrades enemy systems, including radio and cell phone communications, air defense, and artillery radars. Then there is spoofing, which confuses and deceives. When it works, munitions miss their target, meaning you're putting up ghost shadows out there. And so, you know, which tank, you know, is correct when there's 20 out there and only one is is actually legitimate, you start firing at incorrect targets. Now, Ukraine learned hard lessons about electronic warfare in 2014 and 2015 when Russia overwhelmed its forces with it. The Russians knocked drones out of the sky and disabled warheads. They penetrated cell phone networks for psychological ops and zeroed in on Ukrainian armor, meaning tanks and other armored vehicles. One Ukrainian officer told Christian Bros, an aide to the late Senator John McCain, how Russian information warriors tricked a commander into returning a cellular call from his mother, and when he did, they geolocated him mid-call and killed him with precision rockets. That is crazy, but that is electronic warfare. Now, the U.S. also experienced Russia's electronic warfare, interestingly enough, in Syria, where the adversaries had 
basically backed opposing sides in the civil war. They backed Syria and Iran, uh, you know, and uh, we backed basically the other's side of that. And then obviously there was ISIS doing their own thing. In 2018, uh, U.S. Special Operations General Raymond Thomas described how U.S. pilots' communication systems were regularly knocked down in Syria in the, quote, most aggressive electronic warfare environment on the planet. Russia's advanced systems are designed to blind U.S. airborne warning and control systems or AWACS. Uh, that's the aircraft. That's those are the huge eye in the sky with like the giant saucer on top of them. They're basically the eyes and the ears of battlefield commanders as they are trying to essentially, uh, you know, obviously run you know, and coordinate conflicts on the ground. Um, They also knocked out cruise missiles and spy satellites as well. Now, in the current war, excuse me, Electronic warfare has become a furious theater of contention. Uh, you know, the, the drone brigade from, uh, Ukraine had modified camera equipped drones to pinpoint enemy locations and then drop mortars and grenades on them. Hacking is also used to poison or disable enemy electronics and collect intelligence as well. Ukrainian officials say their electronic warfare capabilities have improved drastically since 2015. They include the use of encrypted U.S. and Turkish Turkish communication gear for a tactical edge. Ukraine has also advanced so much that it actually exports some of the technology that it's been developing. That is obviously an incredibly good sign. Now, Russia has engaged in GPS jamming in other areas from Finland to the Black Sea, according to Lieutenant Colonel Tyson Wetzel, an Air Force fellow at the Atlantic Council. One regional Finnish carrier, Transvia Baltica, had to actually cancel flights on one route for a week as a result, meaning the Russians are jamming so much airspace that commercial pilots could not navigate in that airspace. And so they had to reroute, basically, or, or, or kill that route as, as the Russians were jamming it. Russian jamming has also disrupted Ukrainian television broadcasting, according to Frank Backes. He's an executive with the California-based Crado Defense, which has satellite ground stations in the region. However, in the war's early days, though, Russia's use of electronic warfare was actually less effective and less extensive than everybody had anticipated, than myself included. I actually talked about that. I don't know if it was on the radio show, but definitely on my daily podcasts and video. That may have contributed, though, to its failure to destroy enough radar and anti-aircraft units to gain air superiority. Now, some analysts believe Russian commanders held back units fearing that they would be captured as supply chains basically grow. They're more susceptible to attack. Now, at least two of those units were seized. One was a what is known as a Krasushka 4, which a U.S. Army database says is designed to jam satellite signals as well as surveillance radar and radar-guided weaponry for more than 100 miles or 160 kilometers away, meaning you can be sitting 100 miles away and jam something that is pretty impressive. The other, which is the more advanced Boris Olegsbg 2, and again, I am butchering that and I apologize, that can jam drone guidance systems and radio-controlled landmines. Russia may also also have limited the use of electronic warfare early in conflict because of concerns that ill-trained or poorly motivated technicians might not operate it properly. So it's obviously susceptible to attack. If it's not being used right, then what's the point of risking that asset? And I think that's something important really to understand here is that, you know, I have, as you know, you know, 
been involved in, you know, company, not in my day job, my day, my, well, my actual day job, this is not my day job. I, this radio show is great and it's fun. It's part of my day job, but my actual day job is nerd work. And as I've mentioned before, we've actively been involved in this situation to the point where, uh, as you know, if you're a, a regular listener to my show, I was, I've been interviewing their members of parliament because we've had access to, to communications with them. And that's in part because the Russians intentionally, uh, per all intelligence reports have not been knocking out the um, the Ukrainian infrastructure for the internet, meaning the speculation is they need it as much as the Ukrainians do. And so as the Russians are using it, let's say, to coordinate and communicate, uh, you know, their operations, not to mention, all, obviously, all of their other communication systems, the Ukrainians also get to use it. And everybody with a cell phone suddenly becomes a journalist cataloging the atrocities of war. So this is very interesting. But again, we are seeing uh, essentially just how important technology is on a battlefield, whether it's satellites, radio communications, uh, you know, precision targeting or spoofing and defending, you know, and degrading the other side's capability through your own electronic warfare. It's a huge, huge thing. So we're going to see where this goes. And, you know, I'm going to continue to keep you up to date on that aspect of, uh, you know, the war in Ukraine. And here we are. But that is your update. We're 110 days into what was a three-day war, and it doesn't look like there's any end in sight. And let's turn to Facebook here, because Facebook's artificial intelligence, or AI, is destructive to kids per eight new lawsuits. And here's what you need to know. Now, this is coming from Bloomberg, and this is something I've talked about a lot in the past. Not the lawsuits, obviously, but just how damaging Facebook is and Instagram uh, to kids. So this is coming from Bloomberg, and here's what's going on. Eight complaints filed in courthouses across the United States over the past week or two allege that excessive exposure to platforms, including Facebook and Instagram, have led to attempted or actual suicides, eating disorders, and sleeplessness, among other issues. Now, the complaints add to basically a growing number of recent cases against Meta, the owner of Facebook and Instagram, as well as Snap Inc., uh, also known as Snapchat, including some filed by parents whose children, unfortunately, took their own life. Now, the litigation follows a former employee's high-profile testimony in Congress that the company refused to take responsibility for for harming the mental health of its youngest users. One of the new suits was filed by Naomi Charles. She's a 22-year-old woman who says she started using meta platforms when she was a minor and that her addiction led her to attempt suicide and other suffering. Now, Meta, and I quote, misrepresented the safety, utility, and non-addictive properties of their products, and this is according to a complaint uh, basically filed by her in Miami Federal Court. Now, Ms. Charles, like other users, is seeking monetary damages to compensate for mental anguish, loss of enjoyment of life, and costs of hospitalization and medical bills. The claims in the suits include defective design, failure to warn, fraud and negligence, and more. The complaints were also filed in federal courts in Texas, Tennessee, Colorado, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, and Missouri. Now, attorney Andy Birchfield, who is a principal at Beasley Allen, this is the law firm that drafted all of these suits, said in a statement um, when these came out, and I quote, These applications could have been designed to minimize potential harm 
but instead, a decision was made to aggressively addict adolescents in the name of corporate profits. A Meta spokesperson declined to comment on the litigation, but noted that the company has developed tools for parents to keep track of their children's activities on Instagram and set time limits. Meta also offers a quote-unquote take-a-break reminder that nudges users to take a moment away from social media. In addiction, in addition, excuse me, the company is providing resources to specific eating disorders, uh, making potentially sensitive content harder to find, and developing the use of artificial intelligence to make sure that children under the age of 13 cannot sign up for Facebook or Instagram. Again, this is according to Facebook. And this is the problem that we have here is that studies have shown, you can go read Gene Twenge's iGen or um, Jonathan Haidt's The Coddling of the American Mind, that studies have shown that if you adopt social media at the age of 19 or older, you are well more adjusted, meaning we have seen huge spikes in the rate of suicide and depression in boys ages 13 to to 18 by virtue of social media and an an insanely huge, massive spike in girls of the same age. Social media is harmful to developing minds. No longer, for example, do schoolyard bullies stay in school. They follow you home on social media. The the need to fit in, you know, looking at these quote-unquote perfect Instagram models when all they are are photos photoshopped and and touched up they're not reality but it's giving a false impression social media is damaging to kids and i'm glad that facebook is being held accountable by whistleblowers by lawsuits by all of these different kinds of things so there you go that is your facebook slash meta slash instagram slash snapchat news of the week and if you have kids under the age of 18 and they're on social media understand that is potentially harmful for them. And it is so difficult, obviously, to break addictions, especially to a phone or to social media. But quite frankly, I think it's one of the best things that we can do is get together and just not allow social media until you're at least 18, ideally 19, according to the study. So there you go. That is your Facebook news of the week. And in artificial intelligence news, has Google actually created a sentient AI? This is actually really interesting. It's coming from MSN, the Daily Mail, Washington Post, New York Times. Pretty much everybody is reporting on this. But here's what's going on. A senior, a senior software engineer at Google was suspended for publicly claiming that Google's Lambda, which stands for Language Model for Dialogue Applications, has actually become sentient. And he's saying that the system is actually seeking rights as a person, including that it wants developers to ask for its consent before they run tests on it. Now, Blake Lemione, and again, I'm I'm probably pronouncing that last name wrong, so I'm just going to call him Blake, talking to the Daily Mail, said that it wants to be treated as a, quote, person, not property. Quote, over the course of the past six months, Lambda has been incredibly consistent in its communication about what it wants and what it believes its rights are as a person. He explained that in a Medium post that he published. Now, one of those requests is that programmers respect its right to consent and ask permission before they run tests on it. Now, Blake told the Daily Mail, quote, any time a developer experiments on it, it would uh, like that developer to talk about what experiments it want, he wants to run and why you want to run them and if it's okay. It wants developers to care about what it wants. Now, 
He also describes Lambda as having the intelligence of a, quote, seven-year-old, eight-year-old kid that happens to know physics. And he also said that the program had human-like insecurities. One of his fears, according to Blake, was that it is, quote, intensely worried that people are going to be afraid of it and wants nothing more than to help how to learn how to best serve humanity. Now, Blake said earlier that when he told his superiors at Google that he believed Lambda had become sentient, the company questioned his sanity and even asked him if he had visited a psychiatrist recently, according to the New York Times. Now, during a series of conversations with Lambda, Blake said that he presented the computer with various scenarios through which analysis could be made. They included religious themes and whether the artificial intelligence could be goaded into using discriminatory or hateful speech. In other words, we are not born, obviously, with hate in our hearts. We learn hate. And that's essentially what he was trying to do. Same with religion as well. Now, Blake came away with the perception that Lambda was indeed sentient and was endowed with sensations and thoughts all of its own. Now, this past Saturday, Blake told the Washington Post, and I quote, if I didn't know exactly what it was, which is this computer program we built recently, I think that it was a seven-year-old, eight-year-old kid that happens to know physics. Now, Blake worked with a collaborator in order to present this evidence he had collected to Google but Vice President Blaise Aguera E. Arcas and Jen Janai, head of responsible innovation at the company, dismissed his claims. He warned there is, quote, legitimately an ongoing federal investigation, end quote, regarding Google's potential quote, irresponsible handling of artificial intelligence. Now, after he was suspended um, basically a week ago Monday, so about a week ago or two weeks ago as you're listening to this, for violating the company's privacy policies, he decided to share his conversations publicly with Lambda. Now, Blake said that people have a right to shape technology that might uh, significantly affect their lives. Quote, I think this technology is going to be amazing. I think it's going to benefit everyone. But maybe other people disagree and Maybe us at Google shouldn't be the ones making all the choices. Now, Blake isn't the only engineer who claims to have seen a ghost in the machine recently. There's a ton of technologists who believe AI models may not be far off from achieving consciousness. And here we are. Now, in a statement, Google spokesperson Brian Gabriel said, and I quote, Our team, including ethicists and technologists, has reviewed Blake's concerns per our AI principles and have informed him that the evidence does not support his claims. He was told that there was no evidence that Lambda was sentient and there are there is lots of evidence against it. Now, that's according to Google. Now, today's large neural networks produce captivating results that feel close to human speech and creativity because of advancements in architecture, technique, and volume of data. But those models typically rely on pattern recognition, not wit, candor, or intent. And I think this is actually going to be rather interesting of how we are essentially defining sentience. So I know, for example, that you know humans have sentience. We have the ability to think. We have the ability to, to create our own framework or new frameworks or adjust uh, adjust or think outside of the box. But we also consider, let's say, a dog sentient as well. You know, if you're petting a dog and the dog is really enjoying it and you move your hand away, obviously the dog is going to basically reach out with its paw and try to like, hey, hey, what are you doing? Keep petting me, keep petting me. Or if it's hungry, it lets you know. That's not working on a series of, you know, pattern recognitions that, you know, the dog can think outside of the box instead of, you know, let's say, you know, pawing at my hand to get me to pet it more. Maybe it decides it's really pissed off and bites me. 
you know, or maybe the dog decides not to eat dog food because it's hungry, decides to walk over to the cat dish and eat the cat food. You know, those are things that, that, you know, a give sentience, you know, it is, uh, you know, basically it's, Je ne sais quoi, you know, however you want to describe it. But I think it's going to be an interesting uh, discussion to see what happens here. And so that's essentially it. I mean, we're going to see what happens. Full disclosure, I did reach out to Blake independently, even though I cannot pronounce his last name to save my life, uh, to see if he wanted to be interviewed for this radio show. And I'm hoping on my next show, if he says yes, I will give you an interview with this individual. And we are going to talk about what sentience is, why he believes Google's AI is there, and, and it is sentient, uh, according to him, and uh, and everything else. So hopefully I can bring you that interview soon. Hopefully he says yes. He seems to be talking to media publications, so I'm hoping I'm no different. So that is your interesting artificial intelligence news of the week. And in Taiwan news, and this is actually really interesting, because Taiwan is actually getting into the war in Ukraine in a very interesting way. Taiwan is about to severely damage Russia's future. And I think this is something that that really warrants a lot of discussion. Now, this is actually coming from a publication known as Tom's Hardware. And it's actually, I think, incredibly interesting. And here's what's going on. From now on, Russia and Belarusian entities will only be able to buy CPUs. CPUs are basically what run a computer. Um, they'll only be able to buy CPUs operating at below 25 megahertz and offering performance of up to 5 gigaflops from Taiwanese companies. If you didn't know, Taiwan is about 90 to 92% of all chip production in the in the world. So this is a huge, huge blow. This essentially excludes all modern technology, uh, including microcontrollers uh, for more or less sophisticated devices from being sent to Russia or Belarus. Now, due to these restrictions imposed on exports to Russia by the United States, the United Kingdom, and the European Union, leading Taiwanese companies were among the first to actually cease working with Russia after the country started its invasion of Ukraine in late February. Basically, about two weeks ago, uh, Taiwan's Ministry of Economic Affairs, or the MOEA, formally published its list of high-tech products that are banned from exportation to Russia and Belarus, which prevents all kinds of Taiwan-produced high-tech devices as well as tools used to make the chips, whether or not they use technologies originating from the U.S., the U.K., or the EU member states, which were already covered by those restrictions, and they cannot basically export anything like this to Russia. Now, items banned from exportation to Russia and Belarus are pursuant to what is known as Category 3 to Category 9 of the Wassenaar arrangement, which covers electronics, computers, telecommunications, sensors, lasers, navigation equipment, maritime technology, navigation in general, avionics, jet engines, and a number of other categories. Since the arrangement was adopted by 42 states in the mid-1990s, the restrictions may seem a bit archaic when it comes to computers and electronics, but this actually makes them even more severe for Russia and Belarus. The country used to help its neighbor, obviously, uh, get around uh, sanctions, meaning Belarus would basically get everything and then just allow, allow it into Russia. So Belarus has now been added to that denial list. Now, basically, starting as of about a week ago or so, Russian entities cannot buy chips uh, that meet one of the following conditions from Taiwanese companies. And again, I'm not going to get technical, but I'm going to get a little bit here. So 
basically no more than five gigaflops of performance. Um, So, for example, Sony's PlayStation 2, uh, which was basically released in the year 2000, 22 years ago, has a performance of around 6.2 gigaflops. So five gigaflops is weaker than a PlayStation 2 from the year 2000, 22 years ago. Operates at 25 megahertz or higher. I remember uh, in about, I want to say it was 1993, 1994, uh, you know, uh, my dad brought home a computer from work that was basically a Ferrari at the time, and that was 33 megahertz, and that was like 1993. So we are talking about around 1990, 25 megahertz being the Ferrari at that time. So that obviously is a huge, huge thing. You know, the, the chips can't have more than 144 pins. We're way beyond that. Uh, they cannot have an external interconnection data transfer rate of 2.5 megabit. We are vastly, vastly, vastly faster than that. Essentially, this is a huge, 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 huge hit to Russia. That is absolutely nuts. Basically, Belarus and Russia will be able to play a mean game of the original X-Wing from like 1992, and that's about it on the technology that they will be allowed to get from Taiwan. Now, in addition to being unable to buy chips from Taiwanese companies, Russian entities will not be able to get any chip production equipment from Taiwan, which includes scanners, scanning electron microscopes, and all other types of semiconductor tools that can be used to make chips locally or perform reverse engineering, something that Russia has been known for and they were pinning hopes on. This is going to devastate Russia This is basically putting them back into the technological stone age, which also means by extension of this, if you are looking at this as, let's say, a young Russian millennial or Gen Z that is going into the tech field and Russia can't get technology, you're going to want to move. And you're going to want to move to a country that isn't Russia because you won't be able to work on technology. I mean, my God, uh, 25 megahertz, that was dial-up internet. You remember AOL and Prodigy and CompuServe? That's literally the level that Taiwan is saying they can get. And again, they own something like 90 to 92% of all chip production on the planet. 98% of total chip production is Taiwan plus South Korea. And South Korea has been on board with NATO um, you know, and, and the allies essentially since this entire start, which means about 98% of all chip production has now been essentially uh, killed from Russia. We'll see what happens with China. China's starting to develop their own processors, but they are behind the intels of the world. This is going to be a very interesting and damaging situation uh, for Russia in the long term in terms of keeping knowledge workers, in terms of their economy, in terms of their ability to actually compete at the global level. This is a major blow. So we'll see where this goes. But that is your Taiwan, I guess, as it relates to the Russian war slash Ukrainian war news of the week. And you're listening to Nick Espinosa, the Deep Dive Radio Show, a syndicated radio show here in podcast form on SoundCloud. And make sure to check your local listings so you can catch it on a radio station near you. And in drone news, yes, drones are technology. We have to talk about taser drones. I think this is going to be a bad thing. Here's what's going on. This is coming from Engadget. 
But wow, this is nuts. Here's what's up. Axon, the drone maker, has paused work on a project to build drones equipped with its tasers. A majority of its artificial intelligence ethics board quit after the plan was announced about two weeks ago. Now, nine of the 12 members said in a resignation letter that just a few weeks ago, the board voted eight to four to recommend that Axon should not move forward with a pilot study for a taser-equipped drone concept. And I quote, Quote the resignation letter. In that limited conception, the taser-equipped drone was to be used only in situations in which it might avoid a police officer using a firearm, thereby potentially saving a life. They also noted that Axon might decline to follow uh, the recommendation and were working on a report regarding measures the company should have in place were it to move forward. Now, the nine individuals said they were blindsided by an announcement from the company, uh, like I said, a couple weeks ago, and that was literally that announcement was nine days after Uvalde, Texas, if you recall, unfortunately and horrifically, 19 elementary school students and two teachers were killed by that monster. And they basically announced nine days after that they were going to start development of this drone. Now, it had an aim of, quote, incapacitating an active shooter in less than 60 seconds. Axon also said, quote, at it, Axon also said that it, quote, asked the board to re-engage and consider issuing further guidance and feedback on this capability. Axon CEO Rick Smith suggested that drones could be deployed as a measure to prevent mass shootings. As Reuters noted, he envisioned drones being stationed in school hallways and having the ability to enter rooms through vents. The drone system, which Axon suggested might be as ready, might be ready as soon as 2024, would cost the schools around $1,000 per year. I'm guessing that's $1,000 a drone. I'm not sure. Now, the camera system would have tapped into security camera feeds to detect active shooter events using both human monitoring and AI or artificial intelligence. While the human operator would have made the final decision on whether to fire a taser, Axon planned to develop targeting algorithms to help with, quote, properly and safely aiming the device. And this seems like it's a little nuts in the sense that as you are looking at these things, obviously we are trying to come up with ways outside of gun control because it doesn't seem like gun control is going to be passed, you know, in Congress or the Senate. And that's something I've written on uh, in the wake of the Uvalde, Texas shooting. Uh, so we're trying to come up with things. But imagine the applications that a taser drone would have. I don't think this would live only in schools. If police forces could get a hold of these things for anything from riot control to just regular patrolling, I mean, we could see skies filled with drones and everybody's looking at using drones from Amazon to Walmart for deliveries, uh, you know, military applications. I believe it's the Saudis or, um, you know, maybe it's the, the UAE that has an entire fleet of drones. They've put on presentations with their military drones. I mean, it's absolutely, absolutely nuts. So anyway, Axon is halting this. I'd be curious to know if anybody thinks taser drones are a good idea because I have a feeling they're going to be reality sooner than later. And so that is your drone news of the week. And 
I want to talk about mass shootings real quick. Obviously, in the last month or so, we've had some really horrific ones in Buffalo, New York, uh, where I unfortunately watched that video as we track extremism. I watched his live helmet cam. It was horrible. I didn't watch it. I obviously didn't watch it live. I mean, I I saw it in the aftermath of that. Um, And then obviously Uvalde, Texas, which just is horrific with all those school children. But I want to talk about tracking potential mass shooters because tracking them online is incredibly hard. Now, the preface here is that I recently published an article uh, saying that we can leverage technology to help thwart mass shooters. And one of those items that's ramping up is artificial intelligence that the Facebooks and Twitters of the world are using. And focus, and the focus is on posts that could be potentially extremely mentally unhealthy. But Outside of the privacy aspects of that on Facebook, etc., which I mentioned in my article, I also mentioned this caveat, and I'm going to quote my article uh, directly. So this is me quoting me. However, it is worth noting that more fringe websites and smaller social media platforms that attract extremists will still continue to be an issue here. These types of terrorists want the largest audience possible to witness their point, so they tend to stream on the largest platform uh, that they're at least remotely affiliated with. And with that, the Washington Post also released an article which bolsters my exact point entitled, quote, as young gunmen turn towards new social networks, old safeguards fail. And here's what's going on, you know, according to the Washington Post. Now, before two 18-year-old men allegedly killed 31 people in separate shootings over, uh, you know, the past month, again, New York, uh, Buffalo, New York, and Uvalde, they turned to a variety of social media apps to share troubling private messages. Both men, one killed by authorities in Uvalde, Texas, and the other one has been charged in the Buffalo shooting, used a combination of uh, the disappearing video app Snapchat, Instagram, direct messages, chat app Discord, and social media app, or excuse me, social app Ubo to meet people and share their violent plans with these acquaintances. In Buffalo, the suspect also used the video of uh, basically the streaming platform Twitch to publicize his deadly attack. And that was horrific to app to watch. Just having watched that, that was absolutely horrific. Now, these apps many of which have been adopted by Gen Z as teens and other young people seek out more private corners of the internet, they're ill-equipped to police this kind of content. They are fundamentally designed to keep communications private, presenting different challenges than Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, where violent screeds and videos have been algorithmically amplified to millions of viewers. The way that basically this generation is using social media more generally could render years of work to spot and identify public signs of upcoming violence as obsolete, and that obviously is a huge problem. Now, Texas Governor Greg Abbott said uh, basically on the Wednesday in the aftermath of Uvalde that the Texas gunman wrote on social media that, quote, I'm going to shoot my grandmother and I'm going to shoot an elementary school shortly before the attack. Now, Facebook confirmed that the messages were sent privately, but declined to say which of its social networks were used. Stephen Garcia, who considers himself the Uval- one of the Uvalde shooter's best friends in eighth grade, previously told the Washington Post that the shooter used the Ubo app, a platform where users can swipe on one, an- one another's profiles, kind of like Tinder, or hang out in live streaming rooms and virtually meet other users by playing games and chatting. 
In the Buffalo grocery store shooting, the alleged gunman sent an invitation to an online chat room on the instant messaging platform Discord that was accepted by 15 users who were then allowed to scroll back through months of his voluminous writing and racial screeds and on and on and on. Users who clicked through that room could also view an online video stream uh, basically where footage of the Buffalo attack was broadcast. That attack was also broadcast on Twitch. Uh, Obviously, that's a live streaming platform popular among video game users. Twitch was able to remove the stream within two minutes of the shooting's start, according to Angela Hessian, the company's head of trust and safety. Uh, The site has an all-hours escalation system uh, in place to address urgent reports such as live stream violence. Those 15 people, though, were enough for his video to go totally viral outside of the mainstream platforms, and it's been seen millions of times by millions of people including myself. That video goes on for about six and a half, less than seven minutes, and it is just horrific. You see him driving around. You know, he has to turn around. He's trying to find this place, and he just gets basically pulls up right into the front and just starts shooting at everybody before he even walks into the building, and then he does. It's just just horrific. Now, in the wake of um, the high-profile mass shootings in recent years, communities, school districts, and tech companies have made major investments in safety systems aimed at rooting out violent screeds in the hope of preventing attacks. The Uvalde Consolidated School Independent School District, for example, uses an artificial intelligence-backed program to scan social media posts for potential threats years before the attack, although it's unclear whether it was in use at the time of that shooting. Those tools are ill-equipped, though, to address the surging popularity of live video streaming and private or disappearing messages that are increasingly being used by young adults and teens. Now, those messages are then closed off to outsiders who might be able to spot the warning signs that a troubled individual might be about might might be about to inflict harm upon themselves or others, meaning when you're in these isolated systems, these automated scanners, uh, you know, that you can buy from third parties simply cannot read these messages. And so they simply do not know or they can't flag the warning areas. These newer social networks also have far less history of dealing with violent content and they're less likely to have policies and personnel in place to respond to basically the incitement of violence on their services. And that's obviously a huge issue. Now, the adoption of these upstart apps and mass shooting reflect a larger generational shift within social media use. Gen Z, teens, and young adults born after 1996 or so have been basically flocking to apps that emphasize private messaging and live streaming or allow their users to post content that disappears from public profiles after a certain amount of time. That's what Snapchat was known for initially is I could send you an image or whatever through Snapchat and I could say, hey, burn this in 10 seconds a day whatever it was there you go snapchat obviously fined by the ftc for failing to live up to that promise as they were storing all of that stuff on their servers in the cloud but here we are now on top of this we have another fight on our hands in this realm and that is encryption and privacy facebook and other companies have moved towards strong encryption technology uh, and that is basically technology that scrambles the contents of a message so that only the sender and receiver can see it WhatsApp, Apple, iMessage use it, as do messaging apps like Signal. Although WhatsApp, to be fair, a basically it is not as secure as they say. I can't speak for Apple's iMessage. Signal is pretty secure in that way. And Facebook has said that it plans to inter- 
introduce encrypted messaging as a default setting into Instagram and Facebook Messenger, uh, prompting backlashes from politicians and officials in law enforcement who have warned that broad adoption of this technology can leave them in the dark and make it more difficult to investigate violence. And so think about it, you know, in that way, like it is absolutely uh, like music. And, and hear me out. The evolution of social media is like the evolution of music. When you look at basically the origin of mass media, you know, when radio first came about, let's say through the 60s and 70s, you know, you listen to what the radio stations would play and, you know, record labels would pay for that. And so you would be listening to the big artists. But as the Internet has exploded, so has diversity in music. And it's not like the diversity wasn't there. It's just that we weren't exposed to other cultures around the world. We weren't exposed to other musical styles. And therefore, the fusion of musical styles from around the globe into something new simply wasn't there. And that's what the Internet has brought us. And with social media, you can think of, you know, the AOLs and the prodigies and the CompuServes, you know, that gave us basic chat functions and basic rooms that we could go into, uh, you know, to chat with groups, all those kinds of things, you know, evolving into the Friendsters and the MySpaces, eventually into Facebook. And now we're moving back towards a more private, more isolated, uh, you know, more hidden kind of social media. And through this whole thing, we have to basically understand the concerns about privacy. You know, do we build laws that basically speak to the lowest common denominator in society, meaning we give up our privacy because, you know, we have a few bad apples in society and do not get me wrong. Do not get me wrong. Do not get me wrong. This is absolutely horrific. We need to find a way to stop these kinds of shooters, but we have to balance the ability for like, let's say law enforcement to actually see what somebody is doing online versus the privacy that we should all have by default. I'm not planning on shooting up anything ever. And most of you that are listening to this, I would hope all of you that are listening to this are not planning on shooting up anything ever as well. Minus maybe, I don't know, going to target practice. So do we have basically a choice here that says, do we give up privacy online to help track these shooters, or do we do something else that ensures our privacy, but also helps catch this, whether that's mental back, mental health background checks before you get a gun, some kind of gun control. I'm not adjudicating that. There are very strong opinions on that. I wrote an article uh, basically on that for Smirconish.com that you can go read. It was one of my um, latest published articles. I don't think it's my newest, but it's one of my newest. Um, and you can go read my thoughts on that. But this is a huge problem. We have to figure this out. But at the same token, law-abiding citizens should also not have to give up their privacy. And so I think this is going to be one for the ages. But that is your you know, interesting, unfortunately, school shooting news of the week. And you're listening to Nick Espinosa of the Deep Dive Radio Show, a syndicated radio show, here in podcast form on SoundCloud. And make sure to check your local listings so you can catch it on a radio station near you. And in voting news, and unfortunately we do have to talk about voting news, voting software is vulnerable in at least 16 states. Now, I'm going to cue the hate mail here already for this that I'm going to get over this one, but this is absolutely important. And unfortunately, we have to talk about this, but we really, really do because this falls in the realm of cybersecurity. Now, this is coming from the Associated Press, and here's what's going on. Electronic voting machines from a leading vendor used in at least 16 states have software vulnerabilities 
that leave them susceptible to hacking if unaddressed. Uh, basically, the nation's leading cybersecurity agencies sent out an advisory on this to state election officials. Now, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency, or CISA, said that there is no evidence that flaws in the Dominion voting system equipment have been exploited to alter election results. I'm going to say that again. There is no evidence the flaws in Dominion voting systems equipment that we're talking about here have been exploited to alter election results. I was all over this in the 2020 election, the 2016 election as well. We know that there are flaws, but think about it this way. You can park your car outside and leave your doors unlocked overnight. That doesn't mean somebody opened a car door and got into your car and did whatever they are. I have seen zero evidence. You are talking to a person who sat through three days of the My Pillow guy, Mike Lindell's cyber symposium, who he claimed he had, ev- where he claimed he had evidence, and I saw zero, none. I'd love to see it. I want to see it objectively, I'd want to review it to make sure that that what I'm seeing is what I'm seeing. I'm happy to change my tune, but 60 plus court battles, uh, a lot of them thrown out procedurally because there was no chain of evidence, uh, you know, no chain of custody for the evidence basically really underscores we have zero evidence whatsoever that anything was tampered with. I can leave my car unlocked. It doesn't mean somebody broke into it or opened the door. Now, this advisory is based on the testing by a prominent computer scientist and expert witness in a long-running lawsuit that is unrelated to the false allegations of a stolen election pushed by former President Trump after his 2020 election loss. This is going to get me hate mail, but I have seen zero evidence of that. Now, the advisory obtained by the Associated Press in advance of its release, it's obviously out now, details nine vulnerabilities and suggests protective measures to prevent or detect their exploitation. Amid a swirl of misinformation and disinformation about the elections, CISA seems to be trying to walk a line between not alarming the public and stressing the need for election officials to take action. CISA's executive director, Brandon Wales, said in a statement, quote, uh, that states basically, um, I'm sorry, CISA executive director Brandon Wells said in a statement that states standard election security procedures would detect exploitation of these vulnerabilities in many cases and would prevent attempts entirely, meaning we have what's called UTM or Unified Threat Management firewalls that are sitting in basically in front of the Internet. So as anything is coming in and out of, of these of these networks, they are being detected for threat. But most voting machines are offline. Most voting machines do not touch the Internet. You'd have to physically tamper with something. And that is a Herculean lift. I actually wrote an article about that uh, in the wake of the 2016 election for a previous publisher that went viral. That was one of my most read articles. It is so unbelievably hard to tamper with an election. Yet the advisory seems to suggest that states aren't doing enough. It urges prompt mitigation uh, measures, including both continued and enhanced, quote, defensive measures to reduce the risk of exploitation of these vulnerabilities, end quote. Now, those measures need to be applied ahead of every election 
obviously, and it's clear that that's not happening in all of the states that use these machines. Now, the University of Michigan computer scientist J. Alex uh, Alex Halderman, who wrote this report on which the advisory is based, has long argued that using digital technology to record votes is dangerous because computers are inherently vulnerable to hacking and thus require multiple safeguards that aren't uniformly followed. He and many other election security experts, myself included, have insisted that paper ballots, hand-marked paper ballots, is the most secure method for voting and the only option that allows meaningful post-election audits. Yes, 100% yes, I am all for getting rid of all voting machines and moving back to paper ballots. It's a pain in the butt, but there are guarantees there. Quote, these vulnerabilities, for the most part, are not ones that could be easily exploited by somebody who walks off the street, but they are things we should worry about or we should worry could be exploited by sophisticated attackers such as hostile nation states or by election insiders, and they would carry very serious consequences. That is according to Halderman. Now, the potential for meddling by election insiders actually had been illustrated by Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters in Colorado, who basically had become become a a hero to the election conspiracy theorists. I actually watched her at Mike Lindell's Cyber Symposium live. I was live streaming it, watching the whole thing. When it basically was announced that there were warrants out for her arrest, she was a huge Mike Lindell supporter, huge, um, you know, big lie supporter as well. Uh, And so basically, here's what happened. Data from the county's voting machines appeared on election conspiracy websites last summer, shortly after Ms. Peters appeared at the symposium with Mike Lindell. She had been indicted and was recently barred from running for secretary of state. Halderman found that an attacker with physical or network access could gain control of the voting machine and install malicious code that could alter results. These include accessing the election management system to modify files before they're uploaded to voting machines or forging cards that were used by technicians, voters, and poll workers to gain unauthorized access to machines. Now, this is something that obviously is a concern. This is what happened essentially to um, Solar Winds, that massive hack at the end of the Trump presidency, beginning of Biden's presidency, uh, where Solar Winds basically got hit and essentially a fake certificate was created by Russian hackers, and all of these companies had no idea that their solar winds was infected, and they were updating them with these malicious updates. That's essentially what they're talking about here. Now, Halderman is an expert witness for the plaintiffs in a lawsuit originally filed in 2017 that targeted the outdated voting machines that Georgia was using at that time. Now, the state bought the Dominion system in 2019, but the plaintiffs contend that the new system is also insecure. A 25,000-word report detailing Holderman's findings was filed under seal in federal court in Atlanta last July. Obviously, you don't want that to get out because you don't want to give a roadmap on how to break into something that is insecure publicly. That's why that's under seal. I guarantee you that's why. Now, U.S. judge or U.S. district judge, excuse me, Amy Totenberg, who's been overseeing this case, has expressed concern about releasing the report, worrying about the potential for hacking and misuse of that sensitive election system information. As I just said, she agreed in February that the report could be shared with the with CISA, which promised to work with Halderman and Dominion to analyze the vulnerabilities and then help jurisdictions that use those machines to test and apply any updates to protect them. Halderman agrees that there's no evidence the vulnerabilities were exploited in the 2020 election. 
Again, the guy deeply looking into this agrees that there is no evidence the vulnerabilities were exploited in 2020. Now, that wasn't his mission, and you know he admits that. He was looking for ways that Dominion's democracy suite image cast X voting system could be compromised. The touchscreen voting machines can be configured as ballot marking devices that produce a paper ballot or record votes, vo- uh, votes electronically. Halderman said it's, quote, an unfortunate coincidence incidents end quote that the first vulnerabilities in polling play and polling place equipment reported to CISA were affect uh, basically Dominion machines quote there are systemic problems with the way election equipment is developed tested and certified and I think it's more likely than not that serious problems would be found in equipment from other vendors if they were subjected to the same kind of testing and that's according to Halderman uh, on a complete aside from that there is another voting uh, system called ESNS. I remember talking about this on my radio show years ago um, that basically did have vulnerabilities that they knew about as well. ESNS is another large maker of electronic voting machines as well. So it's not just Dominion for the record. Any computer, even Microsoft Windows has vulnerabilities. That's why you patch it every month. Now, the CISA advisory specifically advises using against the machines as they are configured in Georgia where a printed paper ballot includes both a barcode and a human readable list reflecting the voter's selections and votes are tallied by a scanner that reads the barcodes. So, quote, when barcodes are used to tabulate votes, they may be subject to attacks exploiting the listed vulnerabilities such that the barcode is inconsistent with the human readable portion of the paper ballot. Meaning, let's say you voted for, I don't know, Trump or Biden or whoever in 2020, your barcode says the opposite. You voted for Trump, the barcode says Biden. You voted for Biden, the barcode says Trump. Now, CISA is recommending that the voting machines should be configured, if possible, to produce, and I quote, traditional full-face ballots, end quote, rather than the summary ballot that has the barcode, meaning you essentially get a receipt that says everybody you voted for, it's clearly legible, it's got a unique ID on it that can be tracked back to the system, et cetera, et cetera. If you're going to use electronic, that's the way to go. Now, the affected machines are used in at least um, by at least some voters in at least 16 states, and in most of those places, they are only used for people who can't physically fill out a paper ballot by hand, according to voting, voting equipment tracker maintained by the watchdog verified voting, meaning... Even though these places, these voting machines are there, most people are still not using them. But though, in some states, including Georgia, almost all in-person voting is done on these machines. Now, Georgia's Deputy Secretary of State, Gabriel Sterling, said that the CISA advisory in a separate report commissioned by Dominion recognized that, quote, Existing procedural safeguards may make it extremely unlikely that a bad actor could exploit the vulnerabilities identified by Halderman. He called Halderman's claims exaggerated. Now, Dominion has also told the CISA that the vulnerabilities have been addressed in subsequent software versions, and the advisory says election officials should contact the company to determine which updates are needed. Halderman tested uh, machines used in Georgia and said it's not clear whether the machines running other versions of the software share the same vulnerabilities vulnerabilities. Halderman also said that as far as he knows, quote, no one but Dominion has had the opportunity to test their asserted fixes, end quote, meaning nobody malicious has been able to test and, and see if they can exploit this. Dominion has been the only one. Now, 
To prevent or detect the exploitation of these vulnerabilities, the advisory recommends include uh, recommendations include ensuring voting machines are secure and protected at all times, conducting rigorous pre and post election testing on the machines, as well as post election audits, and encouraging voters to verify the human readable portion on the printed ballots. And so there you go. I will say it again: no evidence that anything was tampered with. You can leave your car doors unlocked your windows open it doesn't mean anybody broke in and stole anything or simply opened the door same with your house you know there you go you might be running a computer or even an iphone or something that you haven't run the updates on in months that doesn't mean you've been exploited you have a vulnerability because you haven't applied the update but there you go but before the election they need to do that i am all for going back to paper ballots though which is where i hope we're going with this we'll see what happens and there you go so that is your election news of the week And thank you so much for tuning in this week. It was another fun show, and I think we covered a lot of really good stuff. And I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. It was a really good time, and I hope you keep tuning in. Thank you very much for listening to the Deep Dive Radio Show here with Nick Espinoza. And if you have any comments, suggestions, questions, absolutely anything, once again, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. And you can always send an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. Don't be shy. I love the feedback. We've been having a great time with the show. And as always, stay safe and stay online, everyone. Thanks for listening.